This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Lord, thank you that you are a generous king, a gracious God, a kind a kind Savior to us. And today we ask that as we open your word, you would once again have mercy upon us and that you would open our ears to hear you. You would open our eyes to see Christ. You would open the eyes of our heart that we might, uh, that we might uh, glimpse you afresh today. God, I pray for everyone in the room who's burdened and uh, carrying weight today, Lord, on their shoulders, that you would remove it, that you would replace our burdens with your easy yoke. Uh, I pray, the Lord, that, uh, that you would come and inspire our hearts with faith, give us courage for what we're faith- facing, give us trust, Lord, uh, give us peace, we pray. So, Spirit of God, would you come and speak through your word to us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Do you ever, uh, ever feel alone as a Christian? Ever feel alone as a Christian? In particular, do you ever feel alone as a witness for the Lord? Do you ever feel alone when it comes to living out your faith? Think about your job. Do you ever feel alone um, in, as a witness? Do you ever feel a, alone as a representative of the Lord in your workplace? Maybe there's not many other Christians. Maybe there are no other Christians. Do you ever feel that way in your school, maybe in your middle school, your high school, your college, grad school, wherever you go to school? Do you ever feel it there where you feel like the pressure and the environment and the culture is just not worshiping the Lord? You feel somewhat alone in your stand for the Lord. You don't have anyone else to stand up with you, to stand up for you. No other fellow believers that sort of have your back. Maybe you're in that kind of a context. You know what that's like to feel alone in an environment or a, maybe not entirely alone, but a significant minority in an environment. Some of us feel that way with family. The holidays are coming up and uh, some of us will be sitting around a Thanksgiving table uh, or a, a Christmas table in a few weeks Uh, celebrating, and you may be the only believer in your family, and you just feel alone in that context. You just feel perhaps misunderstood, perhaps judged, perhaps thought of as crazy, and you just feel alone. Times like that highlight our need for the Lord and our need for His people. And it's sort of an alone time that we encounter Paul as we enter into Acts 18. You see, in Acts 17, he was in Athens bringing the gospel to Athens, and he was by himself. He was traveling by himself at this point. Uh, Really, the only time, as we see him, he always has companions. But he was alone in Acts 17, and he was actually brought up to speak to the intellectual elite of the day, the Areopagus, the philosophers, the professors, the intellectual elite. He spoke to them. He was asked to speak to them, and he explained to them about Jesus, and he got very mixed reviews. Everybody didn't say, this is great. We've been waiting on you, Paul. Well, look at 17, before we look at 18, look at 17, verse 32. This is what happens at the end. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, Paul is preaching about Christ being resurrected, some mocked. They laughed at this idea, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So there's a range of moderate interest. So uh, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among those 
whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with him. So Paul has, by himself, he's had an open door to preach the gospel. We don't ever read later that there was this revival of church planting in the, book, in, in the city of Athens. And so from there we find in, in chapter 18, he's going to go to Corinth, which is another city in Achaia, which is where he is, which is Greece, basically. It would be Greece today. So let's read verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read this in sections because it's, so, it's such a big chapter. But let's look at 1 through 11. So Paul enters Corinth by himself, and look what happens. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garment and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue, rather, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So Paul travels by himself after a mixed response in Athens. He goes to Corinth. Now, verse 1 tells us uh, he left Athens and went to Corinth. Corinth is a significant city uh, in, this, uh, in this region of Achaia and really in all of the Roman Empire. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Rome is the largest city. Alexandria, which is in Egypt, northern Africa, uh, that is the second largest. And then Corinth is the third largest. And Corinth is known for its commerce. It's a city of great trade. Corinth is positioned such that it has a trade route by land uh, that runs north-south and there is sea coming through uh, east-west. So there's sea uh, travel coming east-west and land travel north-south. So it is this strategic city for trade. One commentator said, if trade could radiate from Corinth in all directions, so could the gospel. So we're going to see Paul goes here. Next, he's going to go to Ephesus. These are significant strategic cities for the gospel. Apart from being a city of commerce, Corinth is known secondarily for being just a wild place, an out-of-control place. It is a decadent place known for its immorality. Uh, for one thing, uh, sailors hang out there, people that are traveling by boat. So that oftentimes, uh, with, with all due respect to anyone who served in the Navy, that, is a, uh, that can create an environment 
uh, of immorality where people are just there for a while and then moving on. But they were so uh, notorious that the term Corinthianize prior to Christ, I think a couple centuries before or something, the term Corinthianize came into play, which means to commit immorality. That was the, uh, the term, what they were kind of known by. So even by the standards of the Roman Empire, they were a decadent society. So Paul arrives there. And what we learn about Paul when he arrives there, if we look at 1 Corinthians, and now we taught on 1 Corinthians a few weeks ago, and this really informed, it's going to inform my whole approach to this chapter. Because in 1 Corinthians, Paul gives this autobiographical note of what it was like when he showed up at Corinth. So Acts 18 says, he went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila. So it just tells us he went. But here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. Um, When I came to you, brothers, okay, that's where we are, When I came to you, Corinthians, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, verse 3, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my message and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power. So Paul says that when I came to Corinth, This is how I came. Weakness, fear, and trembling. He's just had this solo experience in Athens. He shows up in Corinth, not with some great fanfare, not announcing some revival that's going to happen, but he comes as one who's literally shaken. And and as I thought about this chapter, I read this chapter 18 with that in view. Paul comes fearful, weak, and what do we notice in the chapter? Well, we noticed that, that God encourages him. God strengthens him. God appears to him in verses 10 and 11 and gives him a vision of Jesus who comforts him and tells him to keep going. This is a fruitful work you're about. I'm going to do something great through you. So there is the vision, but if we read the whole chapter and think about it from Paul's experience, we'll realize there's one encouraging event after another. God is coming alongside Paul, and he is building in him. He is fortifying him. He is strengthening him. He's building a vision for what he wants to do. He is giving him encouragement. You see, God is faithful to encourage his people as they seek to serve him. As you seek to serve the Lord, God will be faithful to come to you with strengthening encouragement. And we see that in this chapter, not only through the vision, but through other things as well. Now, the word encourage or encouragement doesn't appear in this chapter. Uh, The word strengthen does. But the word encouragement does not appear. But it it is an apt description of what's going on. The word encouragement means this. It means to inspire with courage. Or, get this, it means to stimulate with assistance. It means to assist, and by assisting, stimulate, to encourage. Some synonyms are to embolden, to reassure. That's what the vision is. It's a vision of reassurance. To reassure. It means to help or to aid. And and so as I, I, I want to do something a little bit different as I walk through this chapter today. I want to point out, as we look at the narrative, ways in which Paul, who is in weakness and fear and much trembling when he shows up in verse 1, that, that God encourages and strengthens and fortifies his mission, his ministry, both to believers and unbelievers alike. So I'm going to, I'm going to draw out seven encouragements uh, for those who seek to serve Christ. Seven ways, not because seven's a biblical number, but because that's how many I saw in the chapter. Uh, seven ways that, that he does this. Number one, encouragement 
through companions. Encouragement through companions. If you read Paul's letters, you will see that he regularly is referencing those who are his companions. Now, I think he only used the word companion once. Paul only uses that word once, but he uses synonyms for that that mean the same thing. So he uses these kind of words. Coworker, greet my coworker, or this is a common one. He speaks of fellow workers companions in the mission, fellow workers, fellow servant. He uses that a number of times. Greet my fellow servant or my co, the idea is a co-laborer. And we see that's what happens when he shows up in Corinth. Immediately, God matches him up with someone very different than Athens. He didn't meet anyone in Athens. But look at in Corinth, verse two, he found a Jew named Aquila, who's from Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So what had happened was there was, a, uh, there was things happening in Rome with the Jews. Some, some scholars say there was debate over Christ, that it was this aspect of Christianity that stirred such a rivalry among the Jews that it was a problem that Claudius said, everybody leave. Just get out of here. I don't want you around. And so he expels all the Jews, some of which were likely Christians. He thought of them as Jews. But he he expelled all the Jews from Rome. So here's a couple. The first thing we know about them is that they are refugees. They are out of their home city, Aquila and Priscilla. They have endured some difficulty. They are not in an ideal situation. They didn't choose to come to Corinth. They were kicked out of their home. And so they come to Corinth. So there is this couple that has been expelled, and he meets them, he hears of them, he meets them, and they happen to share the same trade. All rabbis had a trade, and uh, Paul's trade was tent making. Um, And so Aquila and Priscilla, this couple, they made tents. And so he he stays with them, verse 3, and he works with them. So now Paul has this couple, this married couple, we don't know if they had kids or not, it doesn't say, but this family that takes Paul in and he lives with them evidently. So now Paul has some companions that he is working during the day with. He's going to work, I almost said Monday to Friday, but in their their culture it would have been Sunday to Sunday, well, Sunday to Friday, I guess, the Sabbath of Saturday. So it would have been Sunday to Friday. They worked a six-hour worked a six hour day week. So he has them. He is living with them. They're working together during the week. But it says, verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. So they live together. They work together. And then on their day off, he goes down and begins to evangelize and, and witness for the Lord and speak to the Jews and Greeks at the synagogue. So they are a couple that extend hospitality. They work with him. And this is a tremendous encouragement. Here's, here's what he says about them later. Here, they're just two people. So he meets Priscilla and Aquila. But look what he says about them later. In Romans 16, he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila. So he's writing. They're back at Rome. They make it back to Rome in the future. And he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Paul shows up in the city alone. God brings companions to him, co-laborers, co-workers, not just any co-workers, co-workers he lives with, co-workers that he will later say, at some point they risked their life for me, and now they're not only taking in Paul, but in Rome, they're taking in the church. The church meets in their home. This is a hospitable couple. It's a couple given to the mission of the Lord, reaching out to people. And so God comes to Paul and he brings him co-laborers. And that is a gift. 
in a time of encouragement, in a time of being alone, he brings him co-laborers, co-workers, someone to be in it with him. This is so important. This is so important. That there are lots of opportunities to have co-laborers or co-workers in our church. If you look around the room, look in the second service, look in your small group around the circle. God has put us together. We don't have Paul's experience in Athens. Thank the Lord. We have potential co-laborers, co-workers, friends, companions to be together with. It's a gift from the Lord, and it's a gift of encouragement. I recently was having lunch with a friend and uh, t- talking about a particular problem. I was speaking about a particular problem that I was facing. And uh, this friend made a statement to me that was very meaningful, but, it, but I just it, I didn't have an answer. He, he said to me, uh, as described the problem, and he said, how can I carry that with you? And I didn't have an answer because I wasn't thinking about anybody carrying anything with me. I was thinking about being independent, working on the problem, figuring it out. Appreciate your prayers carry it with me. I I wasn't prepared for that. And I don't say that like that's a good thing. That's not a humble brag like, yeah, well, I could just handle it. No, that's shameful. That that God brought a companion to help me and I couldn't think. I I think I gave some kind of answer, but I couldn't think. I wasn't thinking. Who who, who is, where are the work, where where is God's hand at work around me to bring companions, to co-labor, to bear burdens, to shoulder loads together in life? Paul gets that here, and that is something God uses in a tremendous way for all of us. He brings encouragement through fellow workers. We just need to ask him to see where are those people and how can we be those people to one another. Number two, encouragement from supporters. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now, the word occupied, so there's some other translations say that he was devoted to preaching the word. The impression is that he was doing that uh, in a full-time occupation. He was doing that in a regular basis. So evidently, he transitions from his initial tent making, where he's working, earning his own living, to actually then being funded, not by the Corinthians, though. They don't fund him. He makes that point in the letters to them later. But he is being funded. Where is he being funded from? What we find out, if you read the book of Philippians, in Philippians 4, he says, when I left Macedonia, which he did a couple chapters ago, when I left Macedonia, you guys supported me. That the Philippians sent, we know the Philippians sent support to Paul to support him. Now, I'm I'm drawing an implication here. I'll I'll say that. I'm drawing an implication. But if Silas and Timothy show up from Macedonia, Philippi is in Macedonia, if they show up from an area where a church supported him and Paul transitions from tent making to being devoted, being full-time occupied with the preaching of the word, I think we can surmise that that's when the offering arrived, that, that he received support from the Philippians. We know that that's a, that's a fact. Now, it doesn't say this is when it happened. It may have happened multiple times. But they supported Paul. There is an encouragement from supporters. Philippians 4 makes clear that they did that. There's also a sense of which these guys he has history with, Silas and Timothy, they show up. <clears throat> That's huge. He's already, had, he's already been through some stuff with these guys. He got beaten within you know, a, few, a, few, a, few, a few, few points of death. He got beaten severely with Silas. 
So he's been persecuted with this guy, gone to jail with this guy, saw people come to Christ with this guy. So he has his new companions, but he also has, now God encourages, brings historic supporters, likely with finances, which communicates something significant, and likely with historic friends. There is a refreshing and a uniting to be rejoined with someone you have some history with. That's the kindness of the Lord to bring that. How kind of the Lord to meet Paul in his weakness, especially when you're receiving opposition. The next verse is going to say, when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out the garments, I'm in verse 6, and said to them, your blood be upon your own head. So his, his old friends arrive, likely with financial support, and then the next verse we get is the people he's preaching to revile him. They revile him, but the Lord brings him this encouragement. He's not by himself. He's not being reviled all alone. He's being reviled with these historic companions of his, especially when receiving opposition. That is a unique, that is a unique form of encouragement. You ever had someone for you, a brother or sister in the Lord? You ever had someone for you when others are opposed to you? You ever feel like you're experiencing opposition? Could be on the job could be in your family, could be in some situation with a neighbor or a friend or a former friend where you're experiencing opposition. To have someone who says, I'm with you for God to bring someone alongside you is wonderfully encouraging. He's like, these folks, it doesn't matter what these folks I don't know say about me. I'm preaching Jesus. It does not matter that they're reviling me. First of all, that's the mark of a disciple. They're really reviling Jesus. They're not really reviling me. They're really reviling him. Secondly, the people who really do know me, they're with me. The people who do know me, Timothy and Silas, and now, to a lesser degree, Priscilla and Aquila, they're with me. And that can mean everything, to have someone with you and others or opposed to you. Encouragement from supporters. So he has encouragement with these new companions he's working with. He has these supporters. He's not alone. That's the point. He's not alone. There's encouragement that comes from some fruit in this, or um, the biblical word would be fruit. I mean, sort of the, the word we might use in our culture would be success. He experienced some, some, some success. So they're opposing him. But look at verse 7. He left there. He said, you know, your blood be on your own heads. I'm leaving. I'm going to the Gentiles. He left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So he's a Gentile God-fearer. He goes to the guy next door and starts teaching like right next door to the synagogue, uh, which is very interesting. And there, verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed. So the main guy in the synagogue gets converted. You can have a lot of people opposed to you, but if you get the fruit of the main dude gets saved, that's encouraging. God's doing something. There's an encouragement. There's opposition. But look, there's the Lord at work doing something fruitful and encouraging as well. The Lord's doing something through opposition. He's making Paul a true witness, telling a faithful gospel. It's being, exposed by un- it's being opposed by unbelievers. That's fruit as well. But this is the fruit that you're hoping for and looking for, conversion. There is success. There is a conversion. There is fruit. There is God working. Paul is planting seeds and God's bringing growth is what he says later. Now in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, I hardly baptized anybody. He can't even remember who all he baptized, which is one of the most encouraging verses in the New Testament to older people. I mean, he actually says, I can't even remember who I baptized. That's very encouraging. 
And you probably can't remember, it's in 1 Corinthians 1, but if you search, you'll find out that's where it is. If you're old like me, I can't, where is that? There's, what's that verse about forgetting? Oh yeah, you need it. Uh, so it's 1 Corinthians 1. He says, I don't even remember who I baptized, but I baptized Crispus. He remembers baptizing this guy because he leads the synagogue. He's, he's the lead guy, the president of the synagogue or whatever. And many believe, many believe. So in the midst of this opposition, the Lord is at work doing something else. And that's true in all of our lives. No matter what you're walking through today, God is at work somewhere in your life. The challenge is to have the eyes of faith informed by scripture to see what God is doing because God is at work in all of our lives. So there's an encouragement here. God comes alongside and strengthens, empowers the mission by, by working in an obvious way. And the heart of it all is, an, is, is, number four, an encouragement from God's word. Because in the middle of this, God appears to him and gives him a vision. Verse 9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Jesus speaks to Paul in a vision. Now, none of us get that experience. God is not giving new revelation through uh, giving a vision like this today. We have an authoritative, inerrant revelation right here. So God is not giving authoritative, inerrant revelation by speaking as he did to Paul, where Paul could write the words and say, this is exactly what God said. Actually, in my Bible, they're in red. So there's no red letter anymore where someone can say, this is exactly what Jesus said if it doesn't appear here. But he gets a vision and he records exactly what Jesus says authoritatively. It's a word from the Lord. Now, what do we have? We don't have visions, but we've got the scripture. We've got the scripture. So this is God's word to us. God's authoritative word. And there is no encouragement like there is encouragement from the word. And as a matter of fact, all the other means of encouragement that God brings into our lives will, will be means of bringing this truth to us. So the truth of have the benefit of having a companion is not just to have a buddy, but it's to have someone who believes like we do, that we can share in fellowship. We can share in encouragement. We can build each other up through the truth of God. So all encouragement ultimately to our soul is connected somehow with the scripture, to the truth of the scripture. When we read the scripture, we hear the very voice of God. When you open your Bible and read the scripture, you are hearing God's voice. Second Timothy 2, 3, 16 says, this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. That's exactly what's happening here. The Lord Jesus is speaking to Paul, and he is, he's giving him reproof, at least gentle reproof, we'll see in a second. He's training him for righteousness, and he's making him competent for every good work, for his mission. So Paul is writing the New Testament. He doesn't have a New Testament to read. He's a little bit different situation than us. But we have the New Testament, and that's what it does. It makes us competent. The Lord is speaking to Paul so that he will be corrected and made competent for the mission. And that's exactly what the Scripture does for us. There is no encouragement like the encouragement that comes from God's Word. And what does he tell him? What is the Word to Paul? Look at verse 9. Do not be afraid. Literally, it says, stop fearing. Paul shows up, he's fearful, he's trembling, he's weak. Jesus appears in a vision and says, stop it. 
Stop it. Don't, don't, don't be worried. He's coming with comfort and strength. That's a mild rebuke. Don't be fearful, but trust me is what he's saying there. Why is he fearful? Why does he say stop fearing? Well, the next passage we're going to look at shows a guy taking a beating, that the Jews beat a guy. So there, he's already been beaten, Paul has. So he could be fearful of physical violence. Who wouldn't be in this situation? He could be fearful of the obstacles just look incredible. It's great that the Jewish synagogue leader gets saved. Wonderful. But we're in the most immoral city in the world. These people are not going to give up their immorality to know Christ. He could just be overwhelmed. I mean, if you were to pick, where do we want to go to start a church? Corinth would be for the brave. Corinth would be for those who are not faint of heart because it's not going to be easy. Everybody's got to say, great, great. I'm, I'm excited about leaving my idols and following your Jesus. That's not the situation. Could be that. We don't know, but we do know that there is fear there. What else does he tell him? He says, stop fearing. He says, keep preaching. Do not be silent. Verse 10, I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. I am with you. Keep preaching. Do not be silent. Don't let fear give in to silence. Paul, I don't know how you view Paul. I, I mean, I view him as the most rugged guy in the Bible, but he needed God to show up and say, don't be fearful and keep preaching. I don't, I don't ever picture Paul, until this recent study, I never really pictured Paul as a guy who needs to be saying, keep going. I th- you think Paul's ferocious. He's like a beast of a preacher, apostle, evangelist, amazing. Stoned, beaten, shipwrecked. We're going to see he gets bit by a snake. I mean, everything happens to this guy, and he just keeps going. But he has his moments. And Jesus has to show up and say, don't be silent. Why would he say that if it wasn't a real temptation? I know you never thought of this, but if you ever did, don't be silent. That's not what Jesus is saying. Stop being fearful. Don't be silent. Keep preaching. Keep preaching. And then he gives us encouragement. Continue the mission because I am with you. I am with you and no one will attack or harm you. He promises his presence. I'm with you. He promises his protection. No one will harm you. I'm with you. You know, this is one of the most common experiences in the Bible when God shows up and speaks with somebody. It almost always starts, fear not, don't be afraid. Now, sometimes that's because the vision is fearful. Like we'll see at Christmas when the angels show up to the shepherds, the first words are don't be afraid. Why? Because the sky's lit up with angelic beings and you just don't see that every day. So that's a little scary. But here, that doesn't see, it doesn't, you don't get the sense that he's saying, don't be afraid of seeing me. You don't get that sense at all because he's going into, I'm with you. It's this comfort. That is one of the most common comforts of Scripture. God is with us. Listen to these words from Isaiah 42. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. This is God speaking to Israel. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Listen, God is your Savior too, if you've believed in Him. And that is His word to you today. I am with you. When you walk through the difficulties of high water, that's a picture of difficulty. You're not going to drown. I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, that's the challenges of life. And some of us feel like we're in the fire right now. He's saying, you're not going to be burned. I will sustain you because I am your savior. I have made you my own. That is the word of God to you today, church. God is with you. He says this specifically. Jesus says this in the great commission. 
Remember the Great Commission. This is what Paul's doing, living the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. I am with you always. That is what the Word of God says. I am with you. These are the promises of God. Do not be afraid. Keep following and serving me because I am with you. Listen, I'm going to tell you something because I love you. There are some of us in the room that are anxious and fearful and worried because we're not hearing the Word of God. We're not exposing ourselves to the truth of God. We're not having the message of God give us strength. This is a primary way that God builds strength in our heart is to speak to us through his word. And yet, if we do not expose ourselves to his word, if we do not meditate and read on his word, then we will not be strong of spirit. If Paul needs encouragement, how much encouragement do I need? If Paul requires a vision of Jesus, you think I might need a little help? You think you might be struggling a little bit? Many of us are confused and anxious and worried. Many of us are in the Bible regularly and still experience that. I understand. But but many of us, many of us would do great, would receive great help by just exposing ourselves to the Word of God. Is that kind of legalistic to say, well, then you won't have that problem if you're in the Word? I didn't say read God's Word so He will accept you. That's legalism. Read God's word so he will love you. That's legalism. He accepts you in Christ, you're justified. He loves you as a son, he's adopted you. Absolutely. We go to God's word because he loves us. Because he has accepted us. And because he says to us, fear not for I am with you. And we need the reminder of the word of God to fill our hearts. That's encouragement. That's also how we bring encouragement to our fellow workers and our companions. It's to bring the word of God to them. And so Paul gets the word of God. And not only that, look what else. For I have many in this city who are my people. He's saying there's going to be converts. Here's what he said. Go fishing in that lake because you will catch fish. How do you know? Because I have planned fish to be on your hook in that lake. That's what he's saying. You will have a harvest. I have my people are here. Who are your people? Is he speaking about the Jews? No, he's talking about when he says, I have people, my people here, they are those who are going to be redeemed, but yet have not been. I have many in the city, so don't leave. There's people that need to be converted here. That that provides a great encouragement to evangelism. Now, we don't get Paul's word. You can't say, stay in this neighborhood because God inerrantly told me there's five people in this block that are being converted. We don't know. You know, you just don't know. But you do know this. God is saving people. He's not a respecter of persons. If he saved you, he'll save anybody. That's the truth. If he saved me, he'll save anybody. And that he chooses to. So he is saying, hey, it's going to be fruitful. Stay here. So nothing brings encouragement like the word of God. How do I know that? Look at the next verse. And he stayed a year and six months. Paul didn't stay 18 months anywhere. But if you get a word from God, if you show up fearful, weak, and literally shaking, if you show up shaking in fear and you get a word from God, you'll stay longer than anywhere you've ever stayed before. That's what happens. 18 months of faithful service there because nothing brings encouragement like the word of God. Let me ask you this. What would you attempt for God? If if you had this experience, what would you attempt for God? If you knew God was with you, 100%, 
you knew God would protect you and you knew there'd be guaranteed fruit. What would you attempt from God? If you knew God was with you, you knew he would protect you and you knew, you don't know how it all worked out, Paul doesn't know, but you know there'd be fruit. I have many people in the city. I'm not God, but I think it's not an abuse of that verse to say, God has many people in Frisco that don't know him yet. I think I'm on safe ground saying that. I can't say thus saith the Lord, but I think there's gonna be at least one more person saved in Frisco. I think, unless the Lord returns like right now. I think, I'm confident, God has plans for more people to be saved and they are the people who are in your neighborhood, in McKinney, in Plano, in Little Elm, Dallas, wherever you live. They're in your workplace. They're in your family. You're going to see them at Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so I think we have that promise as well. God is going to work, and there's other people who are going to choose to follow him. So what would you attempt? Paul stays on. There's faith, encouragement through the word of God. And he presses on. Look at this. There's encouragement from protection. The next verses show us that he's protected. Look at verse 12. This is a really big deal, what we're about to read. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, pretty cool name, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Paul gets a vision, I'm going to protect you, nothing's going to happen. And then a court case comes up. He gets accused of, what's he accused of? Of teaching contrary to the law, not the Jewish law, the Roman law. So the Roman authorities had a strict policy on new religions. You couldn't just start a new religion and propagate a new religion because frequently there was political ties to new religions. So you can't start a new religion that's going to overthrow the Caesar or or challenge the Caesar. And so they start coming up and saying, this guy's teaching things against your law. Well, once he hears a little bit about it, he said, they're talking about Jesus and Jesus was a Jew and there's stories about him and do we follow Jesus? But he looks at it and he goes, this is an intramural thing. You know, this isn't you versus Rome. This isn't an intramural battle. This is for you to settle. I'm going to have nothing to do with it. This is huge. Because if he had said, shut it down, no Christianity here, it would have set a legal precedent in the Roman Empire that could have been acted upon in other cities, in other jurisdictions, where other proconsuls could have said, we have precedent that this is a dangerous religion, and it could have been shut down. But that's not what happens. He basically says, I have no big deal. It's a it's a passive endorsement of the mission. It, endorsement in the sense that he lets it go. It's God at work. God says, I will protect you. I have many people. I, I'm going to work here. Oh, you've got a court case. You've got to be in there tomorrow. Actually, you don't know. They're going to drag you in. And you've got a court case where the whole thing could be shut down. All of Christianity in this region could be viewed Ill- illegal. Good thing he got that promise from God the night before, right? Or whenever it was. And so God protects him. That's encouraging. That is really encouraging to see God at work preserving and protecting his work. Is it reviled? Is Paul reviled? Yes. Are there people opposed to him? Yes, but God's protecting his work. God's going to say, not yet. It's going to be illegal in some places throughout history, for sure. But right now, in its infancy, no, there's going to be gospel fruit here. I'll see to it. Do you see how there's encouragement from God protecting and preserving his work? And he's doing that in your life, too. 
He's doing that in your life too. Sometimes we don't see it. But in all of this, we see God bringing encouragement to his servant in the midst of his fears and his weakness. What does he do? He brings him companions that he lives with, actually works with his trade, and then does ministry with in in synagogue evangelism on Saturdays. He brings him support, probably financial, for sure financial. We don't know if it was that moment, but we do know he gets support from Macedonia and his old friends show up to walk through mission in Corinth with him. Wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful. He sees fruit. They revile me, but you know what? The top dog got saved. That's pretty good. We'll take that. God brings some fruit, some success to encourage him. I'm with you. He's fearful. He gets the word of the Lord, which says, I'm with you. Keep preaching. Many people are going to get saved, and I'm going to protect you. And now he actually preserves the work and protects it. Do you see how God comes along, his people, to encourage and strengthen and fortify and bolster and help in their time of need? Last two sections I'm going to run through pretty quickly. There's an encouragement to press on. Based on all that everything's happened here, Paul just keeps pressing on. Look at verses 18 to 22. This is a bit of a... Uh, uh, a hodgepodge. He, he, he ticks off a bunch of things quickly here. But verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer. I guess so. He, he won a victory, a legal battle. Many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. He had cut his hair. Uh, I'm sorry. It set, he set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila at Sincre. He had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, another major city, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus, from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. And then he went down to Antioch. That's his sending church. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So we just get what happens next. Paul just keeps pressing on. He, he goes to Ephesus. He preaches there a little bit. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. And they say, come back. He says, if God's wills, he will come back. We'll see you next week. So he comes back later. He, he uh, leaves them there at this point. He goes and he cuts his hair, shaves his head in century, century, I'm sorry, because he had made a vow Uh, Oftentimes these were vows to say, hey, Lord, thank you for what you've done for me. I'm going to take a vow. This is probably a Nazarite vow, which means he he drank no strong drink during the vow. He had nothing that was related to grapes whatsoever, and he didn't cut his hair. This is in the book of uh, Leviticus. So he probably took that vow and said, Lord, thank you. may have been thank you for protecting me in uh, Corinth. I'm not going to have any uh, basically alcohol or grape product or cut my hair. Uh, until I leave. It could be that's the vow he's fulfilling. We don't know. It's a mystery, but we, you can read in the book of Leviticus about these vows. So he finishes up his vow, and uh, then he, he goes back probably to Jerusalem. He lands in Caesarea. It says he went up and greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. That's the way you spoke of Jerusalem. You always went up to Jerusalem, no matter where, whether you're coming north, south, east, or west, and then you went down because it was the Zion, the Mount of the Lord. So he probably goes and reports to them. He definitely reports to Antioch, and then he leaves. So this is starting his third missionary journey. He goes back home. Now he's going to take off again. And look at what he does. When he takes off, he went, goes throughout, verse 23, Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. He goes back all the places he had been before, all the churches he had planted, and he goes and strengthens them. 
Because Paul is not just about going, he's about growing. He's not just about going and planting churches, but he's about providing care for those and helping them mature and grow. So he just keeps pressing on, strengthened by the Lord. And then we meet this last, this last section. We meet this guy named Apollos. He's a great guy in the New Testament. Now a Jew, verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, Achaia, I'm sorry, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. This is encouragement. This is encouragement, not for Paul, but there's encouragement here in strengthening for the mission here for Apollos. There is encouragement through correction. Encouragement through correction. What happens here is there's this very knowledgeable guy. He's from Alexandria, which was a heavyweight intellectual town. Uh, Philo was there as like a well-known intellectual philosopher. So he, is, he, co- he comes from Alexandria. He's eloquent. That is, he can speak really well. He's competent in the scriptures. He knows his Old Testament and some of what's happened under the New Covenant. Um, he is fervent in spirit. It, it literally means he's boiling in the spirit. So he is like an impassioned guy. So this is a rare combination, like a really smart intellectual guy who's also impassioned. He's both super smart, boiling in the spirit. This guy is full of life, but he, he only knows up to the baptism of John. So he doesn't know about Christian baptism, evidently. He doesn't know that union with Christ identifying in the death, burial, and resurrection. Evidently, he's unaware of that. And so here's what Priscilla and Aquila do. They hear him teaching in the synagogue. He's speaking boldly. And then what they do is they took him, very important, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And then he goes on and he powerfully, verse 28, refutes the the Jews and powerfully shows from the scripture that Christ was Jesus. He helps those in grace who believe when he goes over to Achaia. So what happens is they hear him, but look what they do. They encourage and they strengthen the mission by, by, they don't embarrass him. They don't start a riot like some people do in the New Testament. Uh, They don't oppose him publicly. They take him and they instruct him. And usually the wife comes first, Priscilla and Aquila. So she may have been the powerhouse in this couple. We don't know. But she and her husband, they, they help him and get him on the way. And what happens? He gets the help. He gets some doctrinal understanding. He gets the rest of the story. He gets corrected. What you're saying isn't, there's more to the story. He gets the full gospel. And then he goes out and he, he is powerful for the Lord, encouraging the church. He is helping others. This is what happens when there is a, a, a redemptive help brought to someone. This is what happens. They're strengthened for the mission. God adjusts a guy so that he will be fruitful. God takes the scripture to correct and get a guy lined up in the right way so that he can take off and be used by God, so that God will bear much fruit through him. Encouragement through correction is the last one here. God wants to strengthen and fortify us in our callings. Paul was an apostle. That's not our calling. But we have calling as well to be a witness like he was, 
a church member like he was. We have some other callings. Um, a, a worker, I guess he was that as well, a tent maker. A, an employee, an employer, that's a calling for you. A spouse if you're married, a parent if you have kids, a friend, a son, a daughter. We have various callings, and God wants to fortify us in each of these. And he's provided, we see in this passage, ways for the mission to continue. He brings companions. He brings supporters. He brings fruit, sometimes very small, but it's there if we see it. He brings, most importantly, the center of the passage, the word of God, and promises to be with us. He He gives us encouragement to press on, as Paul does seeing fruit. And he will bring correction in our lives to get us on the straight path so that we can bear maximum fruit for God in all of our callings. Temptation here is to say, okay, I want to receive all of those. And we do receive the word of God. But for all the others, I think the Lord wants to call us and say, who can you strengthen? I don't think the Lord primarily usually works this way. Grasp your companions. Hug a fellow worker and don't let him go. I mean, sometimes you may need to do that. I think God says, go be a companion. Go be a fellow worker. Who is it that you can come alongside and say, I'm with you? Paul had supporters. Who can you support? Who could you come alongside and say, hey, look, there may be others opposed to you. I am with you. There may be others coming against you. I am praying. I am standing. You may have circumstances that are coming upon you. I am your supporter. I am bringing the word of God. I am bringing my presence. I am bringing my physical help. I am bringing everything I can to support you. Where can you point out fruit to someone else? Paul has this great fruit. The problem is he knows that Crispus gets saved. Most of us, unless it's dramatic, don't even know the fruit in our lives. Where can you come alongside and show someone God is at work? Paul's being reviled, but look at this great thing that's happening. Where can we celebrate what God is doing? Where can you come alongside someone else and point out the work of God? Where can you place yourself before the word of God for your own soul's encouragement? But it never terminates on us. The word of God is never to terminate on me. It's to come in, the word of God is to come into me, I feast on it, I learn from it, I'm formed by it, so that it goes out from me in a couple directions. First of all, vertically, in praise and honor and service to Christ, and secondly, to others, to other believers to build up and edify and encourage them, and through me to unbelievers to tell them the good news of Jesus. But I will never be telling the good news of Jesus. I will never be building you up as a believer. And I will never be bringing the appropriate worship and praise to God if I'm not uh, being touched and filled with his word. So we want to pursue the word for the purpose of serving God and serving others. The word, the promise. Who can I bring the word of God to? Who can I let know God is with you? Don't give up. Just as Jesus tells Paul. If Paul needs that word, this room is filled with people that needs that word. And if every one of us went to someone and brought that word in a meaningful way, wow, it would be different. It would be so different, wouldn't it? Share a word from the Lord. Who do you need to graciously instruct? Oh, I'm glad you got to that one. There's a lot of people I'm ready to set right. Yeah, notice the spirit of Priscilla and Aquila. It wasn't a public confrontation. There's no sense that they celebrated. Man, we told him. They took him. The implication is privately. They took him and instructed him. Why? So that he could ultimately be more fruitful. That's what we see. He is more fruitful. So here's the question. Who could I come alongside and love and help them be more fruitful? To bear more fruit for the kingdom. That might involve me saying something to them to help them. And who am I open to receiving the same myself? 
Am I open to receiving the help from companions? Am I open to receiving help from supporters? Am I open to hearing God promise me that he is with me and encourage me? There is great encouragement for the mission. God never leaves us or forsakes us. God brings strength to us for what he's called us to do, to strengthen the church, to strengthen Christians, to reach the lost, and to glorify him. That's exactly what this chapter is all about. And the the hidden message, that's not hidden, the upside-down message of Christianity is that you often find strength when you go seek to strengthen someone else. You bring strength to someone else, and you will find yourself growing strong in Christ. It's weird. It's, it's like if you could be a trainer at a gym, and it's like if you could just help others exercise, you would get buff. That's what it's like. <laughs> that is what it's like. I mean, you're probably wondering, how did you get so buff? That's it. I just, I just encouraged others, and that's how my muscles came. But no, don't use me as a physical example. Uh, <laughs> but that's it. It's just like if you could encourage others in their exercise, you're doing great. Keep it going. You're getting strong. Look at whatever they say. I don't know. I see them at the gym, and it just looks really embarrassing to me. But uh, telling grown people to do that in front of everybody. But anyway, so it's just, but if someone, you could tell someone and charge them and train them, you would be strengthened in that process. That's what God wants. God wants you strong because God wants to bear fruit through you. And even during the seasons that feel like a desert, God is using that season to strengthen you as well. So be open to your companions. Go be a fellow worker and a companion. Bring the word, listen to the word, and watch what God will do. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but you have adopted us into your family, and you strengthen the family. You are building something in us to do something through us in each of our lives, and we thank you for that truth. And we pray today that we would actively seek to come around one another to strengthen, that we would actively seek to serve as fellow workers, as companions. Lord, that we would bring the word of God, that we would hear the word of God in our own souls and would bring it to others. And Lord, I pray for those who are really feeling weak and fearful and anxious and discouraged, apathetic, confused, alone, I pray for every one of them that you would speak through your scripture and you would build them. Each of us, Lord, that you would be doing work, that your God-breathed word would strengthen us and would make us competent, would equip us for every good work you're calling us to. Would equip us as those in the workplace to be faithful and diligent contributors in our jobs, that you would equip us as witnesses to represent you to others, that you would equip us as husbands and as wives, you would equip us as children, that you would equip us as students, that you would equip us, Lord, to be light in the darkness. Lord, may the gospel take greater root in our lives, that the death and resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Jesus, the pouring out of the Spirit would make all the difference in us today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.